Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I want to take my text this morning from what is actually the text of the sermon that is the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. You may remember in the first sermon we preached in this series of messages, we mentioned the fact that the book of Hebrews is written not in the form of a formal letter, but in the form of a sermon. It's a homily. You know, most New Testament letters start with a salutation in which the writer identifies himself, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Then the, he identifies the readers to the saints of God, which are at Corinth. But this epistle, the book of Hebrews, starts with God, who at sundry times and in divers manners. So it starts with God, not Paul. It starts like a sermon would begin. He hits the ground running, I guess we can say. He doesn't take much time to prime his pump. He hits the ground talking about God who spoke by his son. So this is a sermon. We've already gone through two chapters, which we might say is the introduction to the sermon. If Paul was the writer to the Hebrews, then he was a typical primitive Baptist preacher who spent a long period of time in his introductory comments. They haven't been superficial comments at all, very rich, substantive things we've talked about in the first two chapters, but he finally comes to what is generally agreed in Bible circles to be the text of this sermon that is the book of Hebrews, and it's the third chapter and the first verse. This is what the whole book is about. Wherefore, he says, we would say therefore. So he's finally come to his main point, and this is the sum and substance of this letter. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. God willing, this morning I want us to deal only with this first verse as we speak on the text of the sermon that is Hebrews. Notice he speaks of our profession in this text. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Now, a profession or a confession is a statement of faith. When a person is baptized, they come forward and they profess faith in Jesus Christ. That's our profession. And he uses this expression twice more in the Hebrew letter, chapter 4, verse 14. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our profession. There it is again, our profession of faith. And then again in chapter 10, verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Now this is really the heart and soul of his purpose in this letter to the Hebrews. He wants them to hold fast their profession. They've made a profession of faith in Christ, but now they're ready to let go of that profession. You remember that the Hebrew Christians were trying to deal with a lot of pressure and persecution. And because of the culture in which they lived, a Jewish culture, 
and the fallout of their profession of faith in Christ. Many of them had had their goods vandalized, their homes ransacked, they lost their jobs, they were dealing with persecution. And because of the pressure that they were under, some of them were ready to recant and go back to their old Jewish religion. They'd confessed faith in Christ, but they were beginning to suffer for that profession of faith, and some of them were ready to go back. And I can imagine it was difficult to live in a Jewish culture and environment, and yet to be a Christian, because you would be seen as a Benedict Arnold, a traitor. Maybe you've heard of the uh, psychological struggle some people have. We hear a good bit about it these days with hoarding. You know, the trying to hold on to the past. Usually when somebody has um, been through a very challenging period in their life, like they lived in the, through the Depression or they grew up poor, then they tend to try to keep everything and they don't throw anything away. And of course, all of us have a bit of that in us, don't we? Each one of us, you know, want to keep things that are, have sentimental value or maybe a nut or a bolt that uh, may be useful to us one day. We all have a bit of that in us, but it can become a psychological problem in some people. May I say the Hebrew Christians were the original hoarders. They could not bear to think of parting with the past. Even though they now had a new and better covenant, they were holding on to what was familiar to them. And we can understand the psychology of that again, no doubt. But you see, because of the persecution that they were experiencing, many of them were ready to abandon their newfound faith, to leave the church and go back to the synagogue, to leave Lord's Day worship and go back to the Saturday Sabbath, just to take the pressure off of them. And in order to urge them to persevere beneath the pressure, and to be true to their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. The apostle writes this word of exhortation. That's exactly how he identifies the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 22. At the end of the letter, he says, suffer this word of exhortation. That expression is a good summary of the book. What is Hebrews? It's a word of encouragement. It's a word of exhortation. It's a pastor telling people, keep going, don't abandon ship, don't lose faith, don't hang up the spikes, don't throw in the towel, hold fast to your profession of faith. You professed faith in Christ, and what you have since Christ has come is greater and better than what the Jews have under the old law. So if you leave the gospel for the law, you're leaving the superior light for the inferior light. You're leaving the sun for the moon. You're leaving the reality for the shadow. And so what he does in this passage is he says, brethren, I want you to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. I want you to consider the object of our faith. We've made a profession of faith. Let's focus on Jesus Christ. And what we have in this verse then is, if you please, a dual thought, and I think we can arrange our sermon like this. First, you have an encouragement, and then you have an exhortation. In other words, you have the truth of grace in this first verse of chapter 3, and then you have what should be an appropriate response of godliness. Or we could say it again, you have doctrine and practice, 
He gives us the objective truth of who we are and what God has done for us by his marvelous grace and how we should respond to it. And we see, first of all, the encouragement in the way that he introduces this verse. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. I want you to notice how he identifies the people to whom he writes. He calls them, first of all, holy brethren. I like the fact that he uses a filial or family term here, brethren. You know, believers in the church of Jesus Christ are brothers and sisters. We actually call each other by those labels, don't we? Now, sometimes we speak to each other in our, by our first names, sometimes Mr. and Mrs., sometimes Pastor. But it's very common to hear the Lord's people call one another brother and sister. And I think it's important for us to understand that we have a tie that binds us together that is stronger and more intimate than you will find anywhere else in this world. We are not just members of the same organization or club. The Church of Jesus Christ is not made up of people like citizens of a country. You know, we all have citizenship in the same country or we are members of the same club or we're employees in the same business. But we are brethren in the same family. And the tie that binds our hearts together in a mutual commitment, my beloved, is the tie of love. The fact that we are kindred in Christ. You know, people tend to have a little more partiality toward their kinfolk than they do to strangers that they might meet in the community. You know, this is our family. When it comes to a family meal, when it comes to a holiday, you know, it's the family that gathers together. Very seldom do you have strangers, you know, that are in that innermost intimate circle of the family. There's a tie, a bond between fellow believers that is stronger than anything you will find in nature. You know, Jesus said that my mother and my brother and my sister are those who do the will of God and keep it. Even beyond natural kinfolk, Jesus said, it's the spiritual tie that matters most to me. In fact, when it comes to following Jesus, he said that if a man despise not his father and mother, or brother and sister for my sake in the gospel, then he's not worthy to be my disciple. And what he means by that is not that he condones forsaking your own, but what he means by that is there may come a time in which natural kinfolk will not understand our desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Christ must take preference. He must be the priority even above what mother or father or husband or wife or brother or sister might think. That, my friends, is a very hard thing to learn. But when you see the worth of Jesus Christ, you know that that's really what matters the most, what he's done for us. And I like how the writer addresses the readers of this written sermon, he calls them brethren. You may remember, as we talked about last Sunday, that in the previous chapter, he says Jesus Christ is our elder brother. Remember verse 11 of chapter 2 where he says, uh, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren. How wonderful it is to think that we have an older brother who will take up for us, who will go ahead of us, who will stand beside us. Jesus Christ, my beloved, is the firstborn 
in the family of God, the firstborn among many brethren, according to Romans 8, 29. God has a big family. He has a people out of every nation and kindred and tongue and people upon this earth, whatever their political or linguistic or domestic or ethnic background might be, God has people that he loved and chosen Christ before the foundation of the world and wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life. And Jesus Christ is the elder brother. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, not because of anything in nature, but because of God's grace. He's brought us into a family. He's adopted us. The little orphaned sons and daughters of Adam have been rescued from the gutter of sin by the kindness and love of God. They have been brought into the family and dressed up and sat at the king's table with his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can call Jesus our older brother today. And that makes us all brethren. My friends, we're holy brethren. You see, here's an encouragement. You're part of a family. You belong somewhere. You know, it's a sad thing to be all alone in this world, to have no relatives, to have no one that you can claim as yours and that claims you as theirs. I've known a few people in life who maybe have lived in such a way or maybe because of death, they've been left alone and they just sort of exist and they really have no one to invite them over for Thanksgiving lunch or for Christmas dinner. You know, that's always a sad thing to me, to see someone who doesn't feel that they belong anywhere. You know, I'm so glad to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ because uh, I feel like I have people to whom I belong. I'm glad to belong to a natural family, but I'm very glad to belong to the family of God, aren't you? I have a place where I fit, I have a place where I belong, where people expect me to be there. They miss me when I'm not. And they're glad to see me. And I'm glad to see them. It's a wonderful blessing to belong. My friends, may I say, you belong to a holy fraternity, a holy brotherhood. You say, well, I'm not holy, Brother Mike. Yes, you are. Look at that verse again, Hebrews 2.11. For both he that sanctifieth, that word sanctifieth, means that makes holy. You're holy, brethren. And they who are sanctified. So God's the sanctifier. You and I are the sanctifies. That is, we're the recipients of his grace of sanctification. He's cleansed us. He's purified us from our sins. Chapter 1 of Hebrews says that he purged us. By himself purged us. Purified. Cleansed. Made us holy. He's cleaned you up, my beloved. You and I are white as the driven snow before the throne of God today. We're as holy as Jesus is holy. Not just preachers. We're not talking about the clerics. We're talking about common, ordinary people, brethren in the family, who've been picked up again from the gutter of sin. They've been cleaned up and dressed up. That story in Ezekiel 16 about the uh, little child that was cast out in the open field, polluted in its own blood, and left to the loathing of its own person, is the story of each one of us by nature. Notice how the Lord in his marvelous grace said, But I passed by and saw thee and had pity upon thee. God in his mercy intervened. And he took the little child and he swaddled it and he cleaned it up and he raised it in its own home so that it grew into a lovely 
young daughter. My friends, that's what the Lord has done for you and me. He's made us brethren and he's made us holy brethren. So that we are as holy in the sight of the father of this family as the oldest son is the firstborn of the family. You and I are as holy as Jesus is holy because he is our holiness. I'm talking to a bunch of holy brothers and sisters here this morning. See, Brother Mike, I don't feel very holy. Well, our feelings may not have caught up with our position before God, but positionally speaking, whether it's true practically or not, and we ought to live in such a way that we would be in practice who we are in position. But I'm telling you, as far as the Father's opinion of you is concerned, my beloved, you are holy brothers and sisters in the family of God. I'm so glad to belong to the family, aren't you? There's an old Christian song that's so simple, but it brings me great joy. It says, my father is rich in houses and lands. There's a little child that loves to brag on his father. My father's rich in houses and lands. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands, of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold. His coffers are full. He has riches untold. And I'm a child of the king, a child of the king. With Jesus as my savior, I'm a child of the king. My beloved, wouldn't that be a good way to start each day in your life is just to hit the floor that morning, put your feet on the floor with the first thought in your mind, hallelujah, I'm a child of the king. My father is the king of the universe. My savior is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And I belong to him. With Jesus as my savior, I'm a child of the king. You're a child of God today, my beloved. You're my brethren. And you are holy. There's encouragement in this expression. Then he says, partakers. Notice that word partakers. And we saw that also in the previous chapter. We saw sanctification and brotherhood in chapter 2. And we also learned in verse 14 of chapter 2 that Jesus partook of our nature. For as much then as the children, he says in verse 14, are partakers of flesh and blood. That means we share this in common. And we all share in common a human body and human experience. And for as much as that is true, the Son of God assumed our nature. He partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus Christ partook with us. You know, at communion sometimes we say, let's partake together of the unleavened bread and the cup of wine. We are partaking in the Lord's Supper. We're participating we're sharing that in common. And my friends, may I say the reason we can share with one another the blessings of God's grace is because Jesus shared in our nature. Because he took part of our nature. He assumed human nature. And because of that, my beloved, you and I now are holy brethren and we are partakers. We are participants. We are sharers in the common love. We have something in common. You know, before people form any kind of alliance, they're going to need to arrive at this point where they say we share something in common. We all share the goal of this football team in common. We share the objective of this university in common. We share the business model in common. So we're all on the same team. I'm telling you, my friends, the family of God shares this in common. We are partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, there's encouragement in this expression also, the heavenly calling. 
What does he mean when he speaks of this heavenly calling? He's not simply talking about a, an earthly call or an external call. He's talking about the internal call of grace, a heavenly calling. Notice this calling came from heaven. It's a heavenly, not an earthly calling. It came from heaven, and it is a call to heaven. Chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that when Christ comes, he will bring many sons to glory. His purpose in dying and sending the Spirit to indwell our hearts is to make us children of God and to bring many sons to glory. It's a heavenly calling. What does he have reference to when he speaks of this heavenly calling? I think he's talking about the call of God in regeneration or in the new birth. Same thing that Paul refers to in 2 Timothy 1.9 when he says, God who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling. Notice it's a holy calling. We're not addressing the idea right now of just a, a local call. This is a long distance call. At some point during the lifetimes of every one of God's elect, God will reach each one of them. He knows where they are and he will call them by his effectual call, his direct and sovereign and efficacious voice. He will speak to the deadness of our souls and awaken us to new life. John 5.25 has reference to this when he says the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. They that hear shall live. Notice that verse is not talking about the voice of the preacher, the soul winner, the personal worker, not the voice of mother, father, brother, sister, neighbor, or friend, but the voice of the Son of God himself. Jesus will speak and he will say live and he will awaken the soul of that little child of grace. And he will apply the work that he did on the cross to that individual personally, vitally, and awaken them, making them spiritually alive. This is a heavenly calling. My beloved, God has done something for each of us that we share in common. He's called us by his grace. First Peter 5.10 says that it's a call to eternal glory. He says, now the God of all grace who hath called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. God called us. Do you know that at some point in your life past, God has called you. He's changed your life. He's done something on the inside of you you were not born with. Isn't it wonderful to think about that God knew who you were and he found you and he called you from heaven with his heavenly calling and he sanctified you and made you brethren in the family of God. I say there's an encouragement in the very way that he addresses this verse. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. And then notice the exhortation in our text. We've talked about the encouragement here, and it's a reminder of what God in his grace has done in our lives. And because he's been so good to us and he's quickened us, he's called us, he's drawn us into a vital relationship with him. He's brought us into union with Jesus Christ, making us one. Notice after he encourages us with what God has done for us by his grace, he exhorts us. And isn't that the way the Bible, that the gospel is always arranged? The gospel is not a call to say, if you'll do this, then God will love you. But it's the message that because God has been so good to you, now you ought to show your gratitude by responding in an appropriate way. That's the sequence. It's always an understanding of what he's done first that should motivate us to do what he says in this exhortation. Wherefore, brethren, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, here's what you're to do now. Consider 
the apostle and the high priest of our profession. Now I say again, this is the text of which the whole book of Hebrews is the embellishment. This is the bottom line, and the rest of the book is an expansion of this idea. It's the development, the application of it. What is the book of Hebrews about? It's a call, an exhortation to consider Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus Christ. But the word consider here is very, very important. It may not appear so on the surface, but it's a very important word. It has to do with more than just a passing glance. It means to fix your mind, to sharpen your focus. It means literally to intently ponder, think about it, to contemplate, to reflect upon, to pay singular attention to. Notice the word singular, to concentrate. The word consider has to do with a sustained focus. Now that's something very few people have today, sustained focus. We're living in the age of the 32nd infomercial, aren't we? I call it the Happy Meal age, you know, the push button and serve. Fast food restaurants, if they take more than three minutes, and people complain and say, why is this a fast? I thought this was supposed to be fast food. You know, we want everything at the touch of a button, don't we? We want to be able to push a button and have access to the news all around the world. We want to be able to push a button and get a $20 bill out of a machine. And in a day like this, the idea of sustaining focus on one thing for an extended period of time, that is the idea of considering is a lost art, may I say. You know, I've got a book at home uh, entitled The Shallows, which is a book on how the internet age, the computer age, has ruined the habit of reading. It's a look at what images on a screen do to our brains, as opposed to sustaining focus and using imagination. You know, when you read a book, you can paint pictures in your mind of what the characters look like and what's happening, you know, the landscape and the topography. But when, you, when everything's already dramatized for you in a quick action film, you know, the imagination after a little while begins to uh, lose its, you know, if you don't use it, you, you'll lose it, right? And the imagination doesn't function. We say we're the, most, uh, we're the smartest generation ever. That's not true, dear friends. I think that we're the most impoverished. Now, we have the greatest technology available to us, but I believe that our generation has lost a great deal as far as our mental capacity, our ability to use our brains and to think and to focus on a single object for a sustained period of time. We've lost the ability to consider. The opposite of this word consider is what we might say a passing glance or a fleeting notice. The kind of concentrated gaze suggested by this word consider in our text might be illustrated by the difference between noticing the landscape as you drive by on the road. You know, as you drive down the highway, you notice the open fields and every once in a while you'll see a deer out there or you'll see some turkey perhaps in a field or you'll say, wow, those, that's a nice crop of soybeans there. It looks uh, like a healthy stand of corn. You'll notice it. 
But there's a difference in glancing at the landscape as you drive by on the road and sitting on your front porch, soaking up the scenery around you. You notice they don't build front porches on houses anymore. And the reason is because folks don't sit out there and rock and consider. They don't study. There's an interesting verse in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28, that says, The heart of the righteous studieth to answer. Heard Elder Sonny Pyle preach a sermon on that text one time. He said that, you know, old timers used to sit out and rock. And we, today, we would think that they were wasting time, but he'd say, what are you doing? They'd say, I'm studying. I'm studying. Studying what? You know, I don't see any books. I'm, but you see, they're considering. They're thinking seriously. They're contemplating. They're reflecting. But we're so busy today. We don't have time to do that, do we? Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8 says, Woe unto them that lay house to house until there is no place to be alone. Now, I'm all for development. I'm all for uh, progress. But I have been in some major cities, like no doubt some of you have, especially up north. It's not uncommon to see houses with just about six to eight, maybe 12 inches between them, you know, and you say, those are the closest houses I've ever seen. You know, there's no yard. There's no, you know, there's no room. House is laid to house. And I'm not criticizing uh, the layout of communities or but I am saying that there's a tendency in our lives to fill it with so much busyness that we don't have any opportunity left to be alone for solitude, for meditation. There's a verse in the Psalms where the psalmist says, while I was musing, my heart burned. Musing. Have you been musing? Have you spent any time in the last week musing? You say, Brother Mike, I haven't had time. I hit the ground running Monday morning. And by the time I hit the bed at night, I'm just uh, wiped out and I just don't have any time to muse. Well, we may have more time than we realize if we had clicked that remote control off button every once in a while. Or maybe uh, take the computer mouse out of our hand, you know, for a little. But it's good to listen to the birds sing. My grandchildren come to the house. I try to take them outside. And when we hear a dove singing its song, I try to say, hey, did you hear that? I'll try to mimic the sound, you know, and sometimes I'll get the bird to answer me back. And it's gotten to where that the little boys will say, listen, Pawpaw, listen, they'll, they'll notice, you see. And it's so important just to notice the flowers, the roses, and the beauty around you, my friends, to slow down, to stand still, to be still and know that he is God. Consider, you see, the thought is that we need to tune out all of the distractions. Now, I know life is tough. I know it's fast-paced. It's busy. And I think people ought to stay busy as, you know, it keeps us out of trouble, doesn't it? A good work ethic, you know, will be productive. For to all labor there is profit, says the wise man. And it will uh, keep your mind busy. But, you know, we need to reflect regularly on what is most important. And this is what was happening to the Hebrews. They were trying to please their comrades, the people in the community where they lived, they were worried about the fallout of their profession of faith in Christ, and they were feeling ostracized, and they were struggling with all of these inward emotions, and the apostle wants them to just tune it all out and to focus intently on one thing and one thing only, on Jesus Christ. The etymology of this word consider suggests the idea of stargazing. Like an astronomer 
would contemplate and study the stars. Now, you can't just go out one night and say, okay, yeah, that's a star, that's a star. I'm an expert in astronomy. Now, you have to study. You have to analyze. You have to chart the course and the movement and the positioning and the brightness. And my friends, it's a lifetime curriculum. It takes great contemplation and serious attentiveness. That's the thought in this word consider. But oh, our lives, may I say, are cluttered with 101 objects. There's a hymn in our hymnal by John Ellerton that talks about this problem of being distracted. He says, behold us, Lord, a little space. Here's a call to worship. And the people as they assemble for worship are singing this song and offering this prayer. Lord, notice us. Behold us, Lord, for a little space from daily tasks set free. That's where we are this morning, right? I hope you've been able to take a deep breath here at Bethel Church this morning. Maybe you were rushed to get here like we are most of the time. <laughs> and uh, you came in with your blood pressure elevated a little bit. Well, take a deep breath and relax for a moment and say, Lord, we're set free from daily tasks. We've tuned it all out for a moment. Behold us, Lord, a little space from daily tasks set free and met within thy holy place to rest a while with thee. Listen to the second verse. Around us rolls the ceaseless tide of business, toil, and care, and scarcely can we turn aside for one brief hour of prayer. That's our problem. That was Israel's problem in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord says, The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But my people doth not know, Israel doth not consider. There's the word. He says, even the common beast of the field knows where its food comes from. They come running when the owner shows up with a meal. He says, the ox knows his owner, the ass his master's crib. But Israel is not even like the dumb beast of the pasture. He does not know. He does not consider. He doesn't take the time to think about his life. You know, in Isaiah 44, 19, there's an interesting verse concerning the folly of idolatry. He talks about a man that cuts a tree out of the forest. And it says he doesn't even consider, God says, that with part of that tree, he builds a fire and roasts some fish. With part of it, he bakes a loaf of bread in his oven. With part of it, he builds a fire to warm himself and his family by the fire in a cold winter's night. And then with the residue of it, what's left, he carves out and makes a god and falls down to it and says, this is my god. He says he doesn't even consider what the Lord is saying there is he doesn't take time to think about how preposterous it is. You know, I sometimes watch the news and it, it, dri it drives my blood pressure up, to be honest with you. But sometimes I watch the news and I think people don't even know how to think anymore. Common sense is an endangered species. It's a lost art. God once said that his people did not consider their latter end. They don't think about where this will end up. But you know, in a day in which we don't consider, it's so important for us to learn again how to focus. We need to put blinders on like a horse at the Kentucky Derby and block out all of the distraction around us and consider the things that are most important. That was Martha's problem in Luke 10. Remember when Mary and Martha hosted Jesus and Martha was in the kitchen and she was cumbered about with much serving? That is, she was just in a tizzy. 
And she burst in the room while Mary sat at Jesus' feet and she complained to Jesus about her lazy sister. She said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? She she'd started the day, no doubt, in a very good frame of mind, but somewhere along the line she has begun to panic and she now behaves very rudely toward her sister and, of course, to Jesus, accusing him of not noticing, not caring. Lord, dost thou not care that my sister... Very rude to Jesus and to Mary. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. And you say, why did he call her name twice? Probably because he had to do that to calm her down a little bit, to get her attention. Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part. Wouldn't it be wonderful, my friends, as we're torn to pieces, we're pulled to pieces with all of the, with the 101 things going on in the world and in our lives. Isn't it important for us to learn this principle that one thing is needful? What he's saying is you don't have to have a 15-course meal. A bologna sandwich and a bowl of soup would do, Martha. You don't have to impress me. Everything doesn't have to be perfect. Martha. One thing is needful, and Mary is maximizing the opportunity. She's chosen the good part. If you would just not worry so much and come in here and sit down and enjoy my presence, fellowship with me, you're not going to always have that opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity that is rare, Martha, for something that happens every day, the preparation of a meal. One thing. How we need to learn one thing in our lives. I forget who it was, the uh, American preacher that once said to a young minister who wanted to be an expert in every field. He wanted to be an expert in not only theology, but in science and in history and in uh, literature. And he wanted to be a Renaissance preacher. And this older minister told him, said, young man, make up your mind on one thing and stick with it. That's good advice. It's good advice for preachers. Make up your mind. Christian, on one thing, and then stick with it. But may that one thing for believers be this, because God has been so good to us. Your holy brethren, your partakers of a heavenly calling, may it be Jesus Christ. Consider the apostle. Tune out everything else and focus on him. That's the text of Hebrews. And I'll tell you, it was a needed reminder, because they were not focusing on Jesus. May I say this is the most important thing to consider of all. Now there are so many things in the Bible he says to consider. Consider the ants. Proverbs 6.16, thou sluggard. You know, if you have a tendency towards slothfulness, it may be good for you to go out and study an anthill sometimes. He says, which having no guide, overseer, ruler, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. So go out and look at how industrious the ants are. Consider the ants. Go out and study them. You know, the proud intellectual of our day doesn't want to be told that that would be the best school to go to is the school of the ants he wants to go to one of the ivy league schools but you know you could find some ants on a on some ivy probably <laughs> so go to the ants thou sluggard and consider her ways learn to have a good work ethic jesus said consider the lilies every anxious person needs to go out and study the flowers and the ravens consider the ravens he says, the lilies toil not, neither do they spin. My heavenly Father clothes them. The ravens do not gather into barns. They don't form a coalition of other ravens. They don't have a conference together and decide how they're going to build housing for the 
poor ravens out there. He says, they gather not into barns. He says, but yet, he says, your heavenly Father feedeth them. They don't plant crops, but God takes care of them. Jesus says to the anxious soul, don't worry, don't fret about your life. If you're a worry wart this morning, my beloved, may I say, go out and study the birds and see that they're not worried. I memorized a little ditty one time, you've probably heard it, that says, said the robin to the sparrow, I would really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. My beloved, consider the birds. They're not worried. I don't think they're taking a, a lot of medicine to try to calm their nerves. Not that that's wrong, but I mean, they're not tied in knots with stomach ulcers. They're, they're not worried. They're just going out there trying to find a meal and God feeds them. And they know that they can trust in God. My beloved, shall not your father. Now, he's their creator, but he's your father. And if he takes care of his creation like that, don't you know he'll take care of his own children? Consider the lilies. My, we've seen some pretty flowers this spring, haven't we? It has been glorious. I'm so sad that it's gone, and I'm so happy that it's gone. <laughs> I'm sad it's gone because of its beauty. I'm happy that it's gone because of its pollen was about to drive me uh, to despair. You know, the pollen messes people with allergies up. But oh, how beautiful. But I'm telling you, my friends, uh, go out and look at the flowers. They're not here for long. But oh, how exquisite, how precise, how lovely they are. But while you're considering the universe, when I consider thy heavens, says the psalmist, the moon and the stars. He went out and actually studied the stars and the vastness of this firmament called the heavens. While you're considering it all, don't forget this, my friends, the most important thing to focus on, to consider of all. Consider blessed Jesus. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. The hymn writer put it like this, bliss comes through sore temptations and conflicts by the way. That describes many of our lives, no doubt. Then he says, remember blessed Jesus. While you have conflicts and sore temptations, Along the way of life, remember blessed Jesus and don't forget to pray. Consider Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man. God from all eternity past, who assumed our nature and became like us for the purpose of dying. Consider His sufferings and His death. Consider His resurrection, His ascension, and exaltation to the right hand of the majesty on high. Consider Him as your prophet, your priest, and your king. Consider him, my friends, as your elder brother, the great shepherd of the sheep, and the friend of sinners. Don't you love that hymn by John Newton, hymn number 212 in our hymnal, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds in a Believer's Ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fears. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Dear Lord, the rock on which I build, my prophet, priest, and king, my shepherd, husband, friend, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, except the praise that I bring. Consider Jesus, my friends. You say, Brother Goins, I don't have time to consider Jesus. I'm listening to the news. I'm looking at the markets. I'm um, analyzing the economy. I'm thinking about what's happening at work. I'm 
considering my studies for this particular class I'm taking, I'm not saying that all of that is wrong, but my beloved, the first and most important thing in your life and mine, if you want to hold fast your profession and not become an apostate, not fall by the wayside, if you want to be faithful and true, you need to think about Jesus first and foremost. The first thing when you wake up in the morning, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to start each day considering Jesus? You say, well, how do I do that, Brother Mike? I just can't flip a switch and start considering him. You just start preaching the gospel to yourself. Imitate the most powerful preacher you've ever heard. And start reminding yourself of all that Jesus has done for you. Consider his spotless life. Think about him as the babe in Bethlehem's manger and the child who did all things well. Remember his personal ministry when he healed the sick. He preached his own everlasting gospel. Remember what he did on the cross when he shed his own precious blood without a murmuring word. Voluntarily he went to the cross for you. He bore the wrath of God in your stead. My friends, sing a few hymns. Get your hymnal out and remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he's done. Put on a preaching tape. Spend a little time, my beloved, listening to the hymns of Zion and the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, reading your Bible every day. If you'll start your day with the Lord, it'll dramatically improve every area of your life. And may I say a true view of Jesus Christ is a safeguard against every theological error. It's the antidote to discouragement. Isn't that true? The hymn writer said, Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my life in vain. I'm tempted then to murmur and of my lot to complain, but when I think of Jesus, when I consider Him and all He's done for me, then I cry, O rock of ages, hide thou me. Sometimes it seems I dare not go one step farther on, and from my heart all courage has disappeared and gone. But I remember Jesus and all His love for me. Then I cry, O rock of ages, hide thou me. Yes, a true view of Christ is the antidote to discouragement, and it's the incentive to keep going in the face of every obstacle that you may face in your life. Consider the apostle and high priest. Now, I didn't even get to that expression. Consider Jesus as the apostle and high priest, but we'll look at that next time when we speak on Jesus Christ, who is superior or greater than Moses. That leads right into the next part of this chapter. May we learn to start our day, my beloved, and throughout the day, turn our thoughts toward Christ, because that is the sublimest, mildest, most glorious thought of all. Keep your eyes fixated and fastened upon Him, whatever the distractions. That's what these Hebrews needed. It's what we still need today, isn't it? Sometimes I feel